Good morning, my friends. Good morning to everybody at our Bolingbroke campus, everybody at 95th, all, all of you here at Hobson. So good to be with you, and welcome back to our series entitled Strange Days. We live in odd times, and we're learning how to thrive in the midst of a culture that's wandering farther and farther from God all the time. Hey, I want to show you a photo, an old one, 30 years old, all right? This is a photo of a team of lifeguards at a local swimming pool in Arlington Heights. I wonder if you recognize anybody in that team of lifeguards. Yes, I am in the middle there. Let's circle me. Uh, that is me. I, you know, back then was a fraction of the man I am today, and it's almost hard to recognize me. My wife's also part of this lifeguarding staff. That is my wife right there. Isn't that fun? We worked together for one summer. You know, as lifeguards, I would argue I was the most devoted to the craft of saving lives out of this whole staff. I say that because I, I, did, it, I did it six summers. I worked uh, in lifeguarding. And, and yet the odd thing was, I'm the only one in this picture who never rescued a single person. Every one of these people could tell stories of multiple times kids were going down, you know, they got too deep and they needed to perform a dramatic rescue. I'll never forget one my wife did in the diving pool where a four-year-old was going down and Jen, I watched it all happen. She executed this rescue according to her training. It was perfect. I was so proud of her. Everybody, you know, lifeguards tell stories of life-saving. That's what they do, except for this guy. Zero, you know, the professional lifeguard who saved nobody. I kind of relate to Lot as we look at him in this passage. Lot, the, the nephew of Abraham, was a professional saver of lives who saved nobody. What I'm talking about is spiritual rescue, not water rescue. Spiritual rescue was Lot's calling. Actually, it's all of our calling. The Lord, Jesus, is the ultimate rescuer. He's the one who died on the cross to make a way for people to be saved. Yet he calls each of us to be evangelists. Uh, the word is a reference to those who help people back to God. And the Lord has called us his representatives or ambassadors to go out into a world that's, that's far from the Lord. The, you know, the upside of strange days when so many people in the culture are drifting further from God is that it provides ample opportunity to reach out to people far from God and help them find home. Rather than being pulled down by our culture, it's our desire to pull them up to Jesus. And that's what we're talking about in this particular message called outreach. And in the case of Lot, he failed. And we're about to see that in clear color. So turning to the, the word of God, I want to go to Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. And read this. They looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them. Who is the them? He walked along with them to see them on their way. Well, they are three angelic visitors whom Abraham and his wife have just entertained, fed them a meal. And they're leaving now, and Abraham's walking them out. And as he does, they're looking out over Sodom. To call them three angels is... 
accurate in part, but not in full. So let me tell you that one of them was a very, very, very special angel, referred to as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And it becomes very clear that this is always a manifestation of God himself, that God wants to appear in the Old Testament among his people, and he does so in the form of an angel. And so Abraham has been hanging with three angels. One of them is is the Lord himself. And it's in this context we continue to read. It says he was walking with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord, that's the, the angel who's the angel of the Lord, said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? This, this God is speaking to the other two angels. Should I tell him or should I not tell him? Should I let him in on my activity, my plans, my strategic work in this broken world in these strange days? And the decision to confide in Abraham, to give him a look behind the curtain, to see what the Lord's up to comes about. And as you may suspect, what the Lord's going to confide in Abraham is that I'm about to wipe Sodom and Gomorrah out. You may know these are the twin cities that were destroyed by God as he rained down fire that just destroyed them all. But it's so curious. Maybe you've never noted this before. Before the Lord describes his destructive plans, he sets the context reminding Abraham of his salvation strategy. God's going to say, yes, I am a God of judgment. But please don't view me just as a God of judgment. I am also and predominantly a God of salvation. And so he talks about salvation, then talks about judgment. And the context, uh, or the talk about salvation that he starts with is all about Abraham, because Abraham is God's plan to bring salvation to the world. Verse 18, the Lord continues, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I've chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. All right, let's, let's dissect this incredible salvation strategy that's revealed to Abraham. Let me start with this. Let's highlight these words. His children and his household. Whom is Abraham to impact? He is to impact his children. That would be his family, which is still promised. He doesn't have any kids yet. And his household. His household is a reference to those he lives with. And in that ancient world, they lived with their employees. And in Abraham's case, he's got a rich business and a lot of employees. They all kind of live together. God says, Abraham, start there. You've got a circle of people who you interact with. Start there. Folks, we've all got a circle of people we interact with. Family, friends, neighbors, coworkers. Start there. And and what is he supposed to teach them? The way of the Lord. That's an important phrase. The way of the Lord is, is a way to refer to God's heart. This is how God is. This is how God lives. His love, his faithfulness, his passion, his grace. The way of the Lord is both a reference to the character of God and the call of his people. Because we too are supposed to follow in his example and live according to keep the way of the Lord. So Abraham has called us essentially, help these people understand who I am and then direct them to walk with me 
in my ways. Okay? And, and one might say, but yeah, that's nice. But Abraham's household, though it's bigger than most, it's still small. How do you change the world by changing one household? Ah, good question. And that's where this first part of the verse comes in. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. The, the strategy of God is to take Abraham's group, his family, and to grow them into a nation. That's what the nation of Israel is. The nation of Israel is the expanded family of Abraham. So what God is doing is implementing the exponential power of generational impact. In a sense, God is saying, Abraham, I know that your family is small now. Your household is relatively small. But trust me, with time, it will grow into a nation. Not just a nation, a mighty nation. And think about it. If you raise those close to you to know and love me, and they raise those close to them to know and love me, and over time, you will have a whole nation devoted unto God. And does that mean that God's only interested in the salvation of Israel? No, look at the next part of this phrase. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Through Abraham and through his nation family, God's plan was that all nations of the earth would be blessed. That people would see Israel as an example of how God operates with his people. That people would discover the gracious and compassionate, the loving heart of God through his work with Israel, and that eventually people would be drawn to Israel like they're a city on a hill, a light in the darkness, and they'd say, I want in on life with that God. And that's exactly what's happened. When we celebrate, if you're a Christian, you know, and you celebrate, wow, I have found the Lord, ultimately it all comes back to this strategy of start small, but over the generations it will expand. And many can be impacted through this impact a few generations will expand it. You know, I saw that evidenced on Friday as I went to a funeral of a man, maybe some of you know, uh, his name is Fred Carpenter. Fred, uh, an just a simple guy, he worked in HVAC, uh, came to Christ as a young man. Uh, a guy, a bus driver, handed him a little pamphlet that explained how he could become a Christian. And he read it, was convinced, and gave his life to Jesus. And Fred found a love with Christ to fill the longing of his heart. He's like, this is the point of life. i got to help others find this too. And he longed to help others find it too. And yet it started so small. God gave he and his wife, Shirley, a son. And he felt the calling to teach his son about Jesus and to raise his son to, to know and love the Lord. Now, then uh, God gave him another son and another son and another son and an eight boys. Can you believe that? And one girl. <laughs> I found out Fred had nine children, 24 grandchildren, 37 great grandchildren. <laughs> That's 70 descendants. He was king of a small country, is what you got going on there, like Abraham. And as I sat in this room filled with family who lifted their voices in worship to God, I witnessed the wisdom and effectiveness of God's strategy. Start with a few, and it will multiply. I met uh, three of his sons who are missionaries. I met descendants who were pastors. I mean, this group is on fire. 
Now, Fred made an impact in that way. He also made an impact another way I want to tell you about, and that was that when he was a brand new Christian, he got a knock on the door of his Naperville home long, long, long time ago, 60 years ago to be precise. And this person at the door says, hey, I'm here to tell you about, there's a little group of us who are trying to start a brand new church. It's meeting at a bank in Naperville. And they're like, a bank? He's like, yeah, it's the best we could find, you know. We'd like to invite you and your family. Uh, Fred said, well, as it turns out, my wife and I, Shirley, are brand new Christians. We will pray about this opportunity. They did pray. God did lead them. And when the Carpenter family showed up at the bank, it is said that the church doubled in attendance with that one family coming. Isn't that great? And Fred and Shirley have devoted the last 60 years to establishing and expanding the Compass Church. And little did they know that this little uh, startup church they were pouring their lives into would be used by God to help hundreds, maybe thousands of people find new life, eternal life in Jesus Christ. Wow. One simple man has made quite a splash in this world for Jesus. Well, the story is not always as beautiful as Fred Carpenter or as Abraham. Sometimes it's as pathetic as Lot. And the Bible is very honest about the truth of the matter, and we're about to see that Lot is an example of evangelistic failure, the failure to help anybody find new life with the Lord. Continuing the, the reading, we're going to turn now. Abraham finds out God's plan to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham freaks. Genesis 18, verse 23. Then Abraham approached him, the Lord, and said, Will you wipe away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Who's Abraham thinking of? Lot. He's like, I know my nephew lives inside on the city you told me you're about to destroy. And Lot is a righteous guy. And he's got a large family and household in hundreds and At first, Abraham's like, surely you're not going to wipe out all those righteous people. And God responds by saying in verse 26, The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham breathed a sigh of relief, going, oh, phew. And then Abraham started to think about Lot's evangelistic effectiveness and thought, maybe 50 is a stretch. Abraham said in verse 28, what if the number of righteous is actually five less than 50? Would you destroy the whole city just because of a lack of five people? The Lord said, if I find 45 righteous there, I will not destroy it. What about 40? (laughs) You can read this on your own. I don't have time to read it all. What about 40, Uh, Abraham says. For 40 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. How about 30? Okay, for 30. 20. All right, for 20 righteous, I won't. How about 10, Abraham? The more he thinks about Lot, the more he's like, you know, that guy is not living a very compelling life. I I wonder if there are even 10. There's got to be 10. He stopped his haggling with the Lord at 10, but come to find out, the only people that were delivered from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah were Lot and his two daughters. And you say, well, were they righteous? Lot was. His two daughters, as we will find out, were spared, but they were a mess. Lot impacted nobody, zero, 
Very, very sad, sad story. Well, I want to continue to tell you what happens next by moving in now to chapter 19, Genesis 19, verse 1. Abraham's still talking to the angel of the Lord, but the other two angels go down to Sodom to see if things are as bad as what they've heard. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Sitting in the gateway of the city. That phrase, uh, you may think just he found a bench. No, it's more than that. That's how the ancients referred to somebody in political authority. Someone who was in office would be said to sit in the gateway of the city. That's where they held court and that's where the officials were. And so to say that Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city is a reference to the fact that he has achieved political success and harnessed power in that community. So we already know about his financial success. He's got financial success. He's got political success. He has no spiritual success. And I think there's a lot of people like Lot who in this world achieve great things when it comes to their career. But if you ask them, how much impact have you made spiritually in the lives of people, which is all that lasts forever, they'd have to confess, eh, none there. Folks, there's got to be more to life than just making dollars. Touching lives and touching them for eternity is the most important thing. And Lot missed it. Lot invited the two angels to stay at his house. Again, uh, he was really excited by this honor. But it didn't go so well. You won't believe what we read now in verse 4. All the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house of Lot. They called the lot. Imagine them pounding at the door. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. I told you that the city of Sodom was corrupt and evil to the core, and it is evidenced by this lustful mob smashing on the door, wanting to gang rape these angelic visitors. And as awful as that is, what Lot says next is arguably even worse. Verse 7, Lot screamed at them, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these two men, these guests of mine, for they have come under the protection of my roof. I'm going to do my best to make sense of what he's saying here, but I admittedly can't make sense of the awful thing he offers. The key in understanding this is this last phrase, they have come under the protection of my roof. In the ancient society, hospitality was the pinnacle virtue. In a world where people were always traveling through a a harsh landscape without much hotel uh, they, they depended on the hospitality of others. And so it was a cultural expectation that if you have people who need to stay with you, you better let them. If you don't, if you fail at hospitality, you're in trouble with God. And Lot now goes, if you fail at hospitality when two angels visit, you're doubly in trouble with God. And so the highest value to Lot in this moment is, I don't want to get in trouble with God. Now, Lot is so concerned about his own not getting in trouble with God, that he's willing to sacrifice his own precious daughters. I would argue this demonstrates a very self-centered man. 
a man who says, my right standing with God is all that matters. And you know, some people are like that. Some would say, I'm saved. I'm right with God. I've trusted Christ. I have my fire insurance, it's been said. And I'm not worried about anybody else. Just me and my own salvation is all that matters. That is a gross misrepresentation of, of what God's looking for. God says, yes, we should glory in the fact that we are saved, that we are right with God, but we should ache and long for others as well to experience what we've experienced. Well, these angels save the day, actually. Lots in big trouble. The angels make the whole people, all the people of Sodom, go blind in order to rescue the family from their wrath. And uh, the angels make all the people blind. They pull Lot back into the house. They say, Lot, the town's going to go really fast here. And so you've got just a few minutes. Who do you know? Who do you love? Who loves God? Whom can we rescue? And Lot turns to his son-in-laws. Verse 14, Lot went out and he spoke to his son-in-laws. Sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said to them, hurry, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Another pathetic scene. Why were they laughing? Why were they like, yeah, right, dad. Maybe they didn't really respect Lot that much. Though he had achieved success in uh, career and politics, Maybe they said, you know, if you know the substance of a man like we do, it's unimpressive. Maybe they laughed because Lot never talked about God. Maybe the, the hearing him speak of the Lord was such an odd thing because it was inconsistent with what they knew of him. We can't be sure, but we know this. He had no spiritual influence in the life of his sons-in-law, and that's pretty sad. Uh, Well, it continues. It gets worse. The the, the angels say, forget your sons-in-law. They're uninterested. We got to get your wife and your daughters and you out of here. But look, even then, Lot hesitates. Verse 16, when Lot hesitated, the men, that is the angels, grasped his hand, the hands of his wife and of his daughters, and the angels led them safely out of the city. The moment when Lot should have demonstrated some spiritual authority, some spiritual leadership in the family, he just chokes. And the angels have to do what he should have done. The angels grab them and say, come on, people, now, and lead them out. Lot's story is a sad story about a guy who doesn't have the respect, doesn't have the influence. Yeah, he's got some success, but he's really self-centered in his own concern. And none of us want to be like Lot. All of us want to be like Abraham or Fred Carpenter. And you're like, yeah, I want to be like Fred Carpenter. Does that mean I got to have 70 kids to make an impact in this world? Does that mean I got to found a church that's going to become a huge church? Those are great things to do if the Lord should lead you in those ways. But I would tell you, with God's strategy of exponential impact through generational change. A small influence today can have big results over time. So start small. One person even. Who's one person in your arena of impact who you just crave for their salvation? One person who you can reach out and love. You know, Jesus, when he looked at the world, the community, he said there, 
The Bible says he was filled with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. His heart broke for them. Do you care enough to love them like Jesus did and then reach out with that love and serve them and hang with them and befriend them? And when you've loved them, then share about the Lord. This is something Lot probably didn't do until it was too late. Talk with them about what Jesus has done in your life. Just say, hey, you know, uh, maybe you know, I'm like really into my Christian faith. Maybe you don't know why I'm so excited about it. You know, there was a day I wasn't a Christian and my life was kind of empty. And then I found Jesus. He's changed everything. Make the Lord something that you can talk about. Even though they don't agree with it, that's fine. Respect where they're at. But share about what Christ has done in your life. And then one other thing I'd mention is invite them to church. One of the things you may recognize about our church is we are very committed to communicating to an unchurched world. You know, our our style of music is contemporary, the style the world is familiar with. Our our style of attire is just normal. I'm, I'm trying to speak in a way that is clear and understandable, even to those who don't have a biblical background. And we do that all so you can invite people to church so that they can learn more about the Lord with us. Not only invite them to church, here's another idea. Invite them to your small group. You know, we've got over a thousand people in small groups, and I have stumbled upon this strategy as a fantastic way to impact lives. Sometimes we think of a small group as a bunch of really mature Christians studying the Bible. Well, you know what spices it up? Invite somebody who knows nothing about the Lord into your small group. I felt God years ago, as I started a men's group here at our church, lead me very strongly in this direction. And so we did, I did that. I invited this guy who didn't have a clue into our group, and he found Jesus. And we're like, oh, now we've got to invite someone else. And we invited another guy who was just new to the whole thing, and I baptized him uh, this last fall. And then we invited another guy, three guys uh, who didn't really understand the Lord, we've invited into the group. And the greatest joy of my small group has been seeing these guys uh, grow to know and love Jesus Christ by far. I was in part inspired by this strategy of inviting folks who don't know the Lord into a small group from a, a, a guy who did it 150 years ago. I'm going way back in time, but there's a guy named Ed. Ed Kimball lived in Boston, 30 years old, worked retail selling clothing. And he had a small group of young men, and he was burdened for those far from God. And so he took this strategy himself. And he was at church one day, and in the lobby he bumped into a visitor, an 18-year-old young man by the name of Dwight. And Ed said, Dwight, I'd like you to be a part of my group. I got a small group meeting. They're all young men like you. And Dwight's like, ah, never really, I'm kind of new to this church thing. That's great. Come. On the first day of Dwight's arrival at this small group, Ed put out a stack of Bibles and he said, all right, guys, we're going to study John, the book of John. And all the other guys in the group flip right to John. And poor Dwight, you know, is like, John, 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 I have no idea what John And uh, Ed saw his embarrassment, so Ed took his Bible, which was already opened to John, and handed it to Dwight, and he grabbed the new one, kind of saving him in that moment of embarrassment. But Dwight loved this group. 
Dwight learned about the Bible, about Christ, and eventually came to faith because of this Ed Kimball and his group. And that Dwight went on to be a pastor and an evangelist. It's, Dwight is D.L. Moody. Some of you have heard of him. And he impacted the whole world through his ministry. One of the things D.L. Moody did was start a church here in Chicago. It's still around today. It's called Moody Church. And way back, a long time ago, it was after uh, D.L. Moody had died. It was 30 years after his death. His church was still rocking and rolling. A guy named George came walking down the sidewalk past Moody's church. George was a lost soul. He was a young man in his 20s. He was deep in sin. He didn't have a clue spiritually. He was aching. And he heard preaching. In those days, they didn't have air conditioning, and so the doors would be open. And he you know, heard this preaching coming out of the church, which he was unfamiliar with. So he stood there on the sidewalk kind of listening in. And he was intrigued, but it was difficult to hear from out there. So he slipped in and sat in the back row. Just for the record, I watch you people in the back row. I got an eye and up there. I got an eye on you. And I'm thinking about you at Bolingbrook in the back row and 95th in the back row. Yeah, you back row people. You're trouble. Well, George was in the back row and he listened to the message of Jesus Christ for the first time and about the life with God offered through what Christ had done on the cross. He was mesmerized. And when the service ended, he kind of sat there in the back row, stunned a bit. And someone in the church walked up to him and introduced themselves and said, Hey, I haven't seen you around. You knew? First time. You know, what'd you think? I don't know what to think. It was, uh, you know, very new to me. And George confided on the fact that he was unfamiliar. Well, the two of them struck up a conversation that ended in George praying to trust Christ. George learned that there was a way to deal with his sin problem, that it was found in the grace offered through the cross of Christ, that Jesus had died for him, paying the death penalty for his own failure. And George said, I want in on that. George is my grandfather. And so George and his wife led their daughter, my mom, to Christ. My mom and my dad led me to Christ. Brings me all the way back to that Ed Kimball guy who had the guts to reach out and invite this 18-year-old kid into his small group. And I realized my salvation, in part, is because of the chain of effects, according to God's strategy, how it multiplies over time through generations. Small impact has great results. So make a small impact through the power of God. As I close in prayer, some of you, particularly you in the back row, are saying, I'm George. You know, I'm hearing this and realizing that I have never trusted Jesus to be my forgiver and leader. And so I want to pray, giving you an opportunity to do just that. It's as simple as crying out to God in prayer because God is listening. Though I'll be the only one speaking out loud. As you cry out in your hearts, believe me, the Lord Almighty is more interested in what you're saying right now than anything in your life up until this point. He hears your cry, seeking reconciliation through his grace. And boom, in that moment, your sins are forgiven and you are made right with him. So if that's where you're at, pray with me. Lord, we just admit, Lord, we've got sin. You know, that moral failure that all of us have, it's there, it's real. 
And Lord, we realize the only way to get it gone is the grace of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, we're looking to you right now. Jesus, be our Savior. Apply what you did on the cross to our lives and wash away our sin. Jesus, be the leader of our lives. Take our broken lives and make them beautiful. Right now. This is our moment. Jesus Christ, we're trusting in you. We pray this in his name. Amen. You know, in the book of Isaiah, speaking to the people of Israel, it says, you are a light in the darkness, a dark world, a, a crazy day world. And, and the people of God are to shine in that darkness. Jesus expanded the image of of the people saying, you're like a city lit on a hill in a dark world where those who are lost are drawn to the light to find God and find salvation. That is who we are. And that's what this next song celebrates.